Hello again, and welcome to episode 30 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. In this episode, we continue our discussion of General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. Now, those of you familiar with my podcast have probably wondered why I haven't discussed Jackson's time at the West Point Military Academy yet. Well, you can rest easy. Your wait is over. Indeed, Jackson did go to the Academy, and he graduated with the class of 1846. This was the class that produced the most generals in history to that point. Of the 59 graduates, 22 would become generals in the Union or the Confederate Army. Now, young Tom Jackson, under the guidance of his uncle Cummins, had received a fairly decent education by Western Virginia standards. By the time he was 15, he was actually teaching younger children in a log cabin school. Jackson applied to his local congressman for an appointment to West Point, but was beaten out after a mathematics test by another young man in the county named Gibson Butcher. However, when Butcher got to West Point, he realized quickly that the experience wasn't for him, so he ran away from the academy. The ever-enterprising young Jackson, when he found out about this, took the opportunity to travel to Washington and appeal directly to Congressman Hayes for another chance at the appointment. Hayes did endorse him, and he immediately made a beeline for West Point, New York. However, Jackson's backwoods education had not prepared him for the entrance exams that awaited him there. In fact, he had to study on a blackboard for several days along with 122 candidates to finally finish the last among the young men who made it into West Point. He, he got in by sheer determination and effort. When admitted to his barracks, Jackson was wearing homespun clothes and looked every bit the part of an Allegheny bumpkin. He was in every way the opposite of his very refined classmate George McClellan. McClellan was classically educated in languages and mathematics. He sailed through his studies with with almost no effort. This was not Jackson's experience. He struggled, staying up late at night to bone up on lessons for the next day. He was also a social misfit. He kept his head down while walking around campus, and he was shy to a fault. According to his classmates, he blushed when spoken to, and his voice had a feminine, almost squeaky sound when he did speak. Now, as discussed previously, Jackson had a stomach ailment, then that was called uh, dyspepsia, that caused him to stand or sit in a bizarrely stiff posture. He was afraid that if he didn't sit perfectly upright, it would would compress his organs and make his condition worse. Perhaps this is foreshadowing of the future health obsessions and hypochondria that he would be subject to. As time went on, though, and against all expectations, Jackson began to rise in the rankings. Once he had caught up with the rest of of the cadets following his first year, he actually began to excel at math. He rose from the bottom to to the rank of 21 by the end of his second year. His roommate was uh, George Stoneman that year, who would go on to win fame as a Union cavalry commander under George Thomas. So by the time he graduated, Jackson ranked 17 in the class of 59. One cadet compared his amazing rise to that of a meteor. George McClellan finished second. McClellan's early roommate was A.P. Hill, 
who would go on to become one of Jackson's most important subordinate commanders during the war. And as a side note, A.P. Hill did not finish with Jackson's class. He contracted gonorrhea on a visit to New, uh, New York and was forced to sit out for a year. Among others who graduated with Jackson included George Pickett, Jesse Reno, Samuel Sturgis, Cadmus Wilcox, Darius Couch, John Adams, and Burkett Fry. Now to pick up where we left off in the last episode. In episode 29, we concluded Jackson's famous Valley Campaign, with Confederate forces defeating two Union armies in rapid, rapid succession at Cross Keys and Port Republic in Virginia. Generals Fremont and Shields were sent reeling by a succession of hammer blows inflicted upon them by Jackson's brigades, who were mainly from Louisiana and Virginia. Jackson was now the most famous person in the country, possibly in the world. However, the fact is that Jackson's Valley cam- Campaign, while brilliant, was actually a diversion. It was a very effective diversion to pull attention and Union forces away from the main action, which was taking place over near Richmond, Virginia. Joseph E. Johnston had ordered Jackson to do everything possible to draw Union forces away from Richmond and to prevent himself or to present himself as a potential threat to the U.S. Capitol by way of the Shenandoah Valley. At this, Jackson had exceeded all expectations. Now, two things to keep in mind about Jackson are, one, he never held a war council with his subordinates. His top generals were almost always ignorant of what he was planning or thinking. He kept his thoughts to himself and issued orders with the expectation they would be followed immediately and without question. And two, the physical and mental exertions of the Valley Campaign took a toll on Jackson and his men. Their incredible feats of endurance and heroism in the spring of 1862 would come at a cost, which we will discuss in further detail in this podcast. Now, it is well known, it is a fact, that Jackson's accomplishments had come against extremely poor Union uh, generalship. Banks, Shields, and Fremont were not the same stock as the generals that the Union were fielding in the Western Theater. Men such as Grant, Thomas, Sherman, Sheridan, and McPherson were learning their craft elsewhere, and Jackson was lucky not to have faced them in the valley. Nevertheless, his his success was just the shot in the arm the Confederates needed at the time when all the news from the Western Theater was bleak, and the enemy was now at the gates of the Confederate capital. Now it's time to discuss the main event in the East. Union General George McClellan was approaching Richmond's doorstep with his massive Union Army of the Potomac. And uh, as of June 1st, Robert E. Lee was now the new commander of the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia. This is because on that same day, General Joseph E. Johnston had been wounded at the Battle of Seven Pines. Lee's appointment was probably the most important decision made by Jefferson Davis during the Civil War. 
And as we discussed previously, Jackson's relationship with Lee was very strong already. Now, Lee immediately ordered Jackson to leave the valley and join his army at Richmond to help defend the capital. So Jackson set his men in motion in mid-June to cross the Blue Ridge Mountains on foot and by train, hopscotching their way east with a wide and effective cavalry screen provided by Jeb Stuart. On June 23rd, Jackson uh, himself was summoned to Richmond in order to meet with Lee and his lieutenants to discuss their plan. Upon his arrival, he was met by his brother-in-law, D.H. Hill. Also, he was met with, by James Longstreet and A.P. Hill, among others. He was an object of particular interest in the capital, and at this point was much more famous than Lee was, but of course this would change. Lee shared his plan, which came as a result of some spectacular work on the part of Jeb Stewart's uh, cavalry when they rode around McClellan's entire army between June 12th and June 15th. As we discussed in the Longstreet episodes, Lee's plan was for Jackson to exit the mountains to the west and stage a surprise flank attack on, on the Union forces north of the Chickahominy River whose commander at the time was uh, Fitz John Porter. This attack would threaten the Union supply line from the north and cause the Federals to fall back, allowing Lee to attack the Union right, which would then force them to abandon their attack on Richmond. This was the plan, at least. And this was scheduled to happen, uh, or to begin, on June 25th. So, in the next 24 hours, Jackson had to ride back to his camp and then uh, march his army more than 30 miles through swamps, brush, and tangles to get ready for this fight. This would not come off as planned. Lee's plan, as most of his early plans were, was very complex and was high risk. It depended on Jackson's army getting behind Porter's Union Corps north of the Chickahominy at just the right time, However, as we discussed in previous episodes, this did not happen. Their march was a disaster, one of many disasters that would befall Jackson's army during a week of battles that came to be known as the Seven Days. There were no good maps of the route Jackson had been ordered to take to, to attack the rear of the Union Army. And Jed Hotchkiss was away from Jackson's army taking care of other business. Also, Jackson and his men were utterly exhausted from having gone three days with almost no sleep. Jackson was a physical wreck. And for a commander who never shared his plans with subordinate commanders... His exhaustion was a particular handicap to the army. They never made it to their appointed destination on the 25th, and the battle was waged without them. So the most famous commander in the Confederate army seemed to do nothing right during the Seven Days Battles. The only good news for Robert E. Lee was the fact that McClellan was so timid and never took advantage of his opportunities. I haven't planned to cover these battles in in detail because I've already covered them in the the Longstreet episodes, and I'm planning a deep dive in the Robert E. Lee episode sometime in the future. 
In short, Jackson and his army did almost nothing right during the entire seven days. However, by the end of these battles, mistakes made by Jackson and others were overcome by the ferocity and by the desperate nature of the Confederate attacks during that time. Battles like Beaver Creek Dam, Gaines Mill, and Malvern Hill were especially ferocious and costly to the Confederates. But eventually, McClellan and his Federals were forced to give up their supply line and evacuate their position in front of Richmond. Jackson was proven to be human after all. But in the end, it it did nothing to affect Lee's or Davis's confidence in him. In fact, following this victory at the gates of Richmond, he was even more popular than ever with the people of the South. One thing the seven days did for certain was to give the Confederacy a new hero. Albert Sidney Johnston had been killed in Shiloh, PGT Beauregard had fallen out with Jefferson Davis, and Joseph E. Johnston was was grievously wounded in front of Richmond. However, Robert E. Lee was now the unquestionable hero of the Confederacy, and would, would remain so until Appomattox. The Confederate victory extended the war by at least a year, if not more, but crucially, it was only after this Union loss that President Lincoln penned the first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing the enslaved people of the Confederacy. This would not have happened if McClellan had taken Richmond and if the war had ended abruptly in the summer of 1862. Soon after the end of the Peninsular Campaign, as it came to be known, Lee reorganized his Army of Northern Virginia into two large corps formations. Jackson and Longstreet would command them. Once this was done, Lee's immediate attention went to a new Union Army that had formed, which was made up of the three armies that Jackson had beaten in the valley. About 90 miles from Richmond in Culpeper, Virginia, John Pope had assembled the Army of Virginia. Now, this is a strange and confusing name for a Union Army, and as we will soon discuss, it would not exist for long. Jackson was immediately dispatched to Culpeper with 14,000 troops. This was less than Jackson's whole command, but it was all that Lee could spare while McClellan was still close to Richmond and he still needed to defend the capital. With those 14,000 men, Jackson was expected to deal with about 50,000 Federals of Pope's command. Of course, he was accustomed to these odds, so neither he nor his men were, were phased. Once Jackson was on his way, things seemed to remain quiet in Richmond, so uh, Lee sent A.P. Hill's Light Division to join him. Now Jackson had about 22,000 men, which was plenty for him to stage an attack. All he needed was an inviting target, which Pope now gave him in the form of Nathaniel Banks' Second Corps. Yes, that's the same Nathaniel Banks that Jackson had routed in Winchester just over two months prior. Pope had allowed Banks' Corps to dangle away from the rest of the main Union Army near Culpeper, Virginia. Jackson immediately prepared to, to attack when he saw this. 
And when his men heard that Commissary Banks was in their front, they cheered and said, quote, Get your requisitions ready, boys. Old Stonewater's, Stonewall's quartermaster has come with a full supply for issue, end quote. What was to come now on August the 9th was the Battle of Cedar Mountain, which was a precursor to Second Bull Run, also known as Second Manassas. Union General Banks actually relished the opportunity to win back some of his credibility after such a notorious defeat to Jackson at Winchester. So Banks and his men were ready for a fight. Now, the battle lines were fairly simple and straightforward. Union and Confederate troops faced each other in a line that ran roughly north to south for about two miles. The rebels were coming from the east facing right and the Federals were facing left. It started with an artillery duel at about 3 p.m., during which Jackson was, was potentially oblivious to the fact that he was directly in the line of Union fire. His staff intervened to protect him and some of their horses were killed by shrapnel, but Jackson seemed to just remain there oblivious and completely unperturbed. Finally, the Union attacked first on the rebel right. uh, General Christopher Augur of the Union Army advanced. However, he was repulsed by Jubal Early's forces on the right as many as nine times. Then Banks ordered a surprise attack on the rebel left that caused Richard Garnett's Virginia forces to give way and retreat in complete disorder. In fact, it was a rout. When Jackson finally saw what was happening on his left, he spurred Little Sorrel directly into the middle of the melee to try and stop the stampede of his men. He tried to pull his sword out of the scabbard, but it had never been used, so it was rusty and he couldn't draw it out. So he unsnapped the scabbard and used the flat of it on the heads and shoulders of the retreating troops, urging them to stop and turn around. Then he grabbed a battle flag and raised it over his head, which finally did get their attention. The effect on his men was immediate and electric. They rallied and turned the tide in that sector of the battlefield. This was, of course, very dangerous behavior for a corps commander and would eventually lead to his demise, But for now, he could do no wrong in the eyes of his men. Even the Union soldiers who witnessed this were impressed. Jed Hotchkiss witnessed some Yankee prisoners actually cheering Jackson as he rode past them coming back after the fight. Even before Jackson's heroics on the left, however, the tide was turning on the Confederate right. The young cadet, James A. Walker, who had challenged Jackson at VMI and was expelled, He was now a colonel in Jackson's army. He led the 13th Virginia Regiment that helped repel the Union attacks on the right. Then, A.P. Hill's men appeared on the battlefield, 8,000 of them, and they led a full-on attack on on the Federals from the rebel left. Then Ewell's men launched a full assault on the right. The effect was overwhelming. The Union troops began a full retreat. The Virginia Cavalry took off in hot pursuit and nearly captured Banks and Pope in their headquarters a mile to the rear of the Union position. 
Finally, however, as darkness fell, Jackson had to call off the pursuit when federal reinforce, reinforcements arrived to stem the tide of retreat. Jackson had once again found a way to isolate a portion of an enemy force and create numerical superiority. And once again, Jackson had routed the enemy and bagged hundreds of Union prisoners. He was more famous than ever. One day after the victory, a Union prisoner was being held near Jackson's tent and was caught plucking hairs from, from Little Sorrel's tail. Jackson asked him, My friend, why are you tearing hair out of my horse's tail? The prisoner, removing his hat, replied, Ah, General, each one of these hairs is worth a dollar in New York. Did you enjoy my episode? If so, please take a moment to rate, review, and share uh, my podcast with others. Meanwhile, join me next time for episode 31, where we will discuss Second Bull Run. Thank you.